You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Genesis, and we're looking at the lives of the what they call the patriarchs sometimes. Uh, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Um, you could say the royal family, uh, the first uh, four families that God chose to be the tip of the spear for his kingdom invasion of the empire on planet Earth. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And today we're moving from Abraham uh, straight to Jacob. Isaac has a little part to play, but not very much. Not quite sure why that is, but if you notice, if you know the story, Isaac doesn't do a whole lot. A lot, he's very passive in all, all these stories. So we're focusing um, mostly on, on Jacob for the next four weeks, mostly on Jacob. And you can tell here in this story, if you didn't notice, uh, this is a, v- a very highly dysfunctional family. It's like the Kardashians or some other, fa- I was trying to think of a highly dysfunctional family that's famous. I couldn't think of a better example than that, but just insert in your own mind, the, the most famous, highly dysfunctional family on television or a movie. And that's what this family is like. The, the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca uh, was not a happy one, apparently. Um, uh, these two children, Jacob and Esau, kind of show that this is a broken fa- family systems therapist would say, this is, this is a, a bad family system. There's a lot of triangulation going on, um, so forth. Bad communication skills, we'll talk about that. But um, what is so interesting about that is that this is one of the founders of the entire kingdom of God. Uh, This is the man whose name becomes Israel. So whenever you hear the word Israel, like even for today, when you talk about the nation of Israel, um, we're talking about this man, Jacob. And so God chooses a man in this very broken system, and that's how he brings the kingdom, which seems strange. If you think the Bible is a story about a lot of clean people, a lot of heroes who do nothing wrong, then this is really going to be helpful to you tonight because it is not at all. The Bible is not that at all. The Bible is a story of redeemed sinners like Jacob. Like Jacob. Because the kingdom is so redemptive. The kingdom is always about redemption. It's not about an easy life. It's not about a clean life, a happy life. It's about a redeemed life. So I want to look at that first. That Jacob needed redemption since he was in the womb. Even in the womb, he was grabbing his brother's heel. He was a usurper. And it began this really bitter rivalry between he and his brother. So if you have a bitter rivalry with your sibling, and if you, you, you may not know it, even if you do. You might not realize that you do. Um, so he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, but if you have a bitter rivalry with your sibling, this is a great story for you. Uh, because these two are at war from the womb. And then, number one, Jacob needed redemption. Number two, we have a redeemer. We have a great redeemer who comes into broken families and redeems from these you know, toxic waste dumps of relationality. So uh, we see that redemption, not in the story today, but we're going to see it later 
And if you know the way that it ends, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, if you know the way the redemption ends in the story of Isaac and Jacob, it's, it's one of um, um, Jacob and Esau. It's one, of my favorite, it's one of my favorite scenes in the Old Testament, the way the two of them reconcile. But first of all, the need for redemption. Jacob had a very rough upbringing. I don't think his parents communicated well, like I said. Um, as we will see later on, um, they committed, you know, one of, the, one of the, the great sins of parenting, which is they played favorites, which is the, the Bible wants you to know that very clearly. In verse 28, it says, Isaac, so the father loves Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And that's a big no-no if you're a parent. You don't want to love one child more than the other child. And you definitely won't, don't want one parent loving one child more than the other, and the other parent wanting this child more than the other child. There's a bad system right here. And it's not just favoritism. That's bad enough. But this is really superficial favoritism. So it says in verse 28 that Isaac loved Esau because... Why did he love him? Because he ate the same kind of food. Like they liked barbecue together or something like that. You know, not really barbecue, actually. But um, they ate of the same game. So it's not even a profound, you know, bond between the two of them. Uh, and then Jacob, Rebecca loved Jacob because Jacob in verse 27 was a quiet man. Uh, he was like a mama's boy. He, was, he loved to dwell in tents. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe because Isaac favored Esau so much, the older, bigger brother, the hunter with the red hair, the hairy, red-haired hunter, um, maybe that's why Rebecca favored Jacob, who was always with her, cooking with her. So Isaac would come back hunting with Esau, his older son, who's barely older son. They're twins, but um, he would come back hunting, laughing, telling stories, you know, slapping each other on the back. Um, and here's Jacob in the tent, right, while his brother and his dad come back from hunting. And Jacob's like made his little clay horse, and he wants to show it to his dad, you know, like a teenager, 13-year-old Jacob. And his dad like just walks right by and he barely even notices. I mean, from a young age, Jacob had this yearning for his dad's approval and blessing, which is one of the reasons he steals that blessing, because he has such a hunger to a sinful degree. Uh, there's such profound sadness in his soul. The way that Moses writes this story, Moses uh, wrote the story, uh, the way he, he just, a few brushstrokes, he lets you know that. And you can see the sadness turning into bitterness. And then the bitterness turning into resentment. Um, you see that happening in the story, the way that Jacob reacts uh, to Esau. So the first question to be asking yourself is, have you felt neglected by your parents? Or maybe even not, not just necessarily your parents, but even could be with your cousins. I mean, for me, it was more in my larger, my dad's family, we'd all go to Polly's Island every year. And at the Polly's Island vacation with the 28 people in this house, I always felt completely unnoticed, completely overlooked. And that stays with you. And that's nothing compared to what, what Jacob felt here. Or have you ever felt anger at your sibling and you didn't know why? You, you do not understand why do I have such a hard time being with him? You know, why is it so difficult for me to be with her? I just can't, I get so irritated and I try to go and meet with them. I'm looking forward to it and I get there and I just can't stand them. You know, why is that happening? So it's, it's awful to be overlooked like Jacob and bitter towards your older brother. But it's also awful to be Esau, who is the favorite son of the father, who's spoiled, he's doted upon, He's never disciplined. 
you see this kind of triple masculinity, you know, the red, the hairy, and the hunter. And apparently that, that masculinity, that toxic masculinity, never goes unchecked. Never went unchecked. Father never corrected him. It says in verse 29, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted, and Jacob was cooking stew. I think he would have watched a lot of the Food Network if he was alive today. So he's cooking the stew in the tent. His brother comes back. He's exhausted. And notice how impulsive and entitled Esau is in verse 30. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, let me gulp some of this red stuff. This red stuff. That's what it says in Hebrew. Let me gulp some of this red stuff. This red stuff. His name, Esau, comes from, uh, Edom is his nickname, comes from the word red. So he's, he's, uh, he's slobbering like on his coat. You know, I imagine him just, this, he probably slurps a lot when he eats. No one ever taught him any manners. But in verse 32, he says, I'm about to die. That's what a fool he is. He says, I'm about to die. Well, he's just come in from hunting. Uh, he's, he's, he's tired, but he's, all, he's just come from hunting. He's not about to die. But because he says he's about to die, he makes this absolutely ridiculous decision. But anyway, that's, so that's Esau. But then Jacob is much more frightening. And I relate to Jacob way more than I do to Esau. And notice his uh, chilling response here that is so calculated and premeditated. In verse 31, you can imagine that he has been preparing for this moment for quite some time. But he says to Esau, right when Esau asks for some stew, sell me your birthright right now. And it's, I think it's highly calculated. And every syllable is planned, and every reaction is anticipated. He knows his brother well. Now, a good brother, of course, would never have asked for Esau's birthright. A good brother would have actually not even allowed Esau to give it to him if he had wanted to give it to him. But this brother hates his older brother so much that he's waiting for this moment of hunger. He knows how impulsive he is, and he says, sell me your birthright now. And then Esau, such a fool, he is more than willing to let it go because a fool is someone who does not value things correctly. And Esau values stew more than his birthright. As the King James says, he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. He sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. Verse 32, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright? Just think about how ridiculous a statement is. That's his entire birth. That's his inheritance. That's his family name. I'm really hungry. Of what use is a birthright? It says in verse 34, a very strong word is used. Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. It'd be like me selling my wedding ring, you know, for a night on the town. Or I'm trying to get into the Wake Forest football game and I don't have enough money, so I just, I just pawn my wedding ring and go use that money to get in because I really have got to get into that football game. It's like selling your children's education fund because you want to make this risky investment just impulsively. I mean, Esau never learned to care about the family mission at all because he was so spoiled by his dad. He, he never learned to value the promise of the kingdom that was coming through his family. He was on earth to hunt and to eat. That's why he thought he was there, to be cool and to hunt and to eat and to thump his chest. And Moses is telling us, this is a messed up family. It's a very unhealthy family. And that gives us permission as children of Abraham, children of Isaac, children of Jacob, to talk about our own family and to not be ashamed about our own family. And all of our family of origins, there are skeletons in the closet, I know that. Because growing up, I thought mine was pretty much perfect. 
After meeting with Jim Pachta, I realize that's not the case at all. Um, but think about your communication with your spouse or your parents' communication. Um, you know, why did Rebecca never confront Isaac about his favoritism? She could have seen that growing from a young age, and she did not touch that. She, didn't, she, would, not, she would not say a word to her husband about his sinful favoritism. And then, what about the communication with the children? Why didn't Isaac ever ask Jacob why his face was downcast? Why did he never notice any of his manipulation? I mean, you know this guy was manipulative from a young age, and his dad never saw it, never asked a question. This is really, a, this is kind of dark stuff. It, it unearths a lot in you if, if you, if you are at all aware of your family story. Um, in the next story, which I didn't even read, I wanted to read it, but in the next story, Jacob and his mom, they, uh, they manipulate Esau uh, and his dad even more. And it's mostly planned by his mom. So what they do is Jacob dresses up like Esau because Esau is hairy. He puts on these, these hairy clothes and he gets his dad, who's pretty much blind, to trick him to think that Jacob is Esau. And so then Isaac blesses Jacob because Jacob's dressed up like Esau. And so basically, um, Jacob gets his dad to pronounce this authoritative final word of blessing on him, thanking that he's Esau. And so not only does Jacob steal the birthright, but he steals the blessing Sorry, of the kingdom. Sure uh, so, you know, the good news is that um, these, are, these are the patriarchs, right? So the good news is that the heart of the story of the redemption of planet Earth involves a family like this. And I find that extremely comforting. Uh, it, both as a parent, as a child, as a brother, um, I find it very comforting that we do not have to despair about the family of origin. Our family stories are not finished and God can redeem and repair anything, any broken relationships, as we're going to see in this story. But what is so amazing is that from this story, God blesses the entire planet. And it's not like that was an accident. He not only chooses this really broken family, but he chooses of the two brothers, the worst brother the most manipulative brother, uh, the most conniving and calculating and serpentine brother. And he says, that's the one I'm going to choose to bless the world. It's amazing. So we're, we're in great need of redemption, but we have a great redeemer, point two, who takes the darkest parts of our stories and he turns them around. And I think it's very important. This sounds like maybe psychobabble or something like that, but I think it's very important to get in touch with the darkest parts of your family story. I cannot tell you how important that is. And if you're somebody that's afraid of counseling, please, please hear me, overcome that fear. Not that everybody has to go to counseling, but if you need to go to counseling and you have a fear, go to counseling. Because it's so, it's, and not even going to counseling, just talking to other people about your, your family story, where you came from. Rebecca here, Rebecca the mom, for 20 years was infertile, she was distraught, her husband, Isaac, prays. God gives her a child. But now she's pregnant with these very high-risk uh, twins. It says in verse 22, the children struggled together within her. Struggled is a very weak translation. It's literally like to break or to bruise or to crush. Like their skulls were actually like crushing each other. It's a very strong Hebrew word. And her, her pain is so severe that she cries out in desperation in verse 22, why is this happening to me? 
And it literally says, if this, then why? Like, if this is happening, why do I even exist? So there was that much sickness and pain inside of her. And then I love how God answers this fragment of a prayer. It's not even really a full sentence. And as my wife always says, she, she says that uh, God answers prayers we barely even pray. We barely, we barely even know we pray these prayers and God answers them. And this is one of those fragments of a prayer. God uh, says to her when she prays that prayer, why is this happening to me? He says in verse 23, Rebecca, you need to know that there are these two nations. These two entire nations are at war within you. That's why you feel so bruised and crushed and broken. And one is stronger than the other. Of course, Esau is the stronger one. One is stronger than the other, but here's the whole center of the passage. Uh, but the older shall serve the younger. And in that little tiny phrase is the whole picture of redemption in this passage. Uh, that's a, that is a vision of the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom that is going to be inside of her. It might not sound much, but what God is saying is, Rebecca, I know how anxious you are. I know how frightened you are. I know how vulnerable you are. And I am bringing into the world a kingdom that values uh, broken people, crushed people, bruised people. And when God says the older shall serve the, the younger in verse 23, it's like, um, it would be kind of like the Communist Manifesto if you were living in you know, 19th century England. This is a revolutionary document. This, this little phrase, the older shall serve the younger, is like a social revolution. Because in that day, they had this thing called the law of primogenitor. P-R-I-M-O-G-E-N-I-T-O-R. The law of primogenitor. And what it said is basically the, the oldest son, and only the son, inherits everything, and the second son gets nothing. And so in this law... Uh, Esau got everything, and Jacob got nothing. And that's just the way it worked back then. And God is like taking this and just flipping it over. You know, like Jesus flipping over the tables of the money changers. He takes that law, and he just overturns it completely. And Isaac says, you know, Esau is my favorite. He's my firstborn. And Esau says, I am the stronger. I get everything. I'm the firstborn. And God says, I will say, who's blessed and not the structures of the empire. The older will serve the younger. I'm going to turn things around. I mean, Esau looks like clearly the stronger nation. If you were betting on a stronger nation, you would choose the guy who was the firstborn, the stronger one, the hunter. Jacob is quiet. He's in a tent. He's kind of a foodie. And back then, you would never have chosen that child to be the one that would bring the kingdom into the world. But as Mary, the mother of Jesus, says in another at-risk pregnancy, she says, uh, this is Luke 1.52, Mary cries out uh, that he has cast down the mighty from their thrones. Yahweh has cast down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Uh, we don't think about Mary as kind of this fierce woman like a, a, a social revolutionary prophet um, like you too, you know, singing like a war song. But, but Mary is saying, Mary the mother, you know, the Virgin Mary, she is saying that he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. She is glorying over the destruction of the empire. Uh, the empire that loves well-adjusted people, high-functioning families, people who are clean and nice and disciplined and successful and healthy. That's the kind of people, the strong that the empire always chooses. Like the Pharisees, polished, look great on the outside, and God is saying, I'm not impressed. 
In my kingdom, the older serves the younger. I flip things around. The great, uh, in, the great interpretive crux of this passage comes from the New Testament in Romans 9.10, where Paul says, he's riffing on this passage and this story. Paul says in Romans 9.10, God chose Jacob over Esau while they were still in the womb. And Paul is really making a point here that it is all God's initiative and salvation, not ours at all. So Paul says, God chose Jacob over Esau while they were in the womb before they had done anything good or bad. So that, we, so that you would know it's not by works. It's not by the, the ones who are the good people or the, or the righteous people, or the ones who've done nothing wrong. It is not by works, Paul says, because they had done nothing good or bad. Uh, God chose Jacob over Esau so that we would realize, and this is Paul quoting this, so that we would realize that the older will serve the younger in the kingdom, that he will flip things in the kingdom. And it is, it is not by works. It's kind of the heart of the message of the gospel. It's not by works. It's by God's grace alone. The biggest reversal of all is he takes the worst sinners and he redeems them. He takes the darkest stories. He takes the darkest part of your story. That's what's so amazing to me. He takes the worst thing that has ever happened to you. And if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, that will be the thing that he uses to make the most glorious. And the reason I know that is because he did that on the cross. He took the worst event in the history of the human race and he made that the most glorious event. I'm not just guessing there. This is a story throughout the Bible. You know, Jacob the schemer becomes Israel, the great nation who strives with God. So the very darkness of Jacob, he uses to make him a great man, the one who wrestles God. And then Peter, who is this impulsive, kind of like a weather, weathercock who just always flipping around, he, he makes him into the rock. The rock who is the, the basis of the whole church. And then Saul, uh, the Pharisee, who was this xenophobic uh, hater of the Gentiles, becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. God is always doing this. And so when you think about right now, when you think about that thing in your life that you say, why did this happen to me? How could God have let that happen to me? This pain is too great. Uh, just think about how God might be reversing things. What might he be up to in your life? How could he take that thing that you think there's no way that could ever be justified. That is, that is too much. That is too much to ask any human being to go through. And, and God says, no, that's, that's where I'm going to redeem you. That's where I'm gonna bring the greatest glory out of your life. You know, I was, uh, I was a, a despairing atheist. I was uh, terrified of speaking in front of people. I had to give a project, uh, uh, once I had to do a, a project, uh, speak in front of my high school class. Uh, any of you teenagers know uh, how terrifying that is to speak in front of the class? And I, I stood up and I had to sit back down. I was too terrified. Despairing atheist, terrified of speaking in front of people. I was bullied, mocked, humiliated, left out, like I was at Pauly's Island. And God's like, I'm going to take that formula and I'm going to do something with that. I'm going to use that. And of course, it's not, I'm, I'm not bragging. It's not about what I'm kind of doing the opposite. It's, but it's not about me and I'm some great person. It's everyone, that's what God does. There's this beach in the Pacific Northwest, I think it's in Northern California, where they used to dump all these beer bottles. They would just pour them, it's, it was terrible, they would just pour them down this, uh, this, this cliff and they would, they would just smash all over the beach. So it was this horrible, it's called you know, Glass Beach, because all these broken shards of beer bottles. Well, over the years, um, the, the ocean would come in 
and the tide would just move them back and forth, you know, sloshing back and forth over each other. And now, today, you can go there, and it's got these incredible, they're like jewels. They're like rubies and diamonds, these different colored, because God uses uh, that, that suffering, the breaking over and over and over to bring about glory in our lives. And the main reversal, the greatest reversal, is to take a backwoods nobody carpenter and to say, this is the mighty God. It's to take this, uh, this crucified traitor, traitor to Rome, uh, got the death penalty, and say, this is the resurrected Savior. Um, he takes our greatest uh, sin and he turns it into our greatest redemption. And that's what we celebrate at this meal. So on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. It's in the breaking of bread, not the putting together of bread, but the breaking of bread that he shows himself to us. The disciples on the road to Emmaus did not know who he was until he broke the bread. And then they said, that's the Lord. And in the same way, he took the cup. When he given thanks, he poured it out. He said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. It's, uh, it's not fun to give blood. I hate seeing blood. Blood is not a pleasant experience. And yet God says, I'm going to save the world through my blood. So whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we're proclaiming his death until he comes again. And uh, I always like to say that uh, God has cleared away every possible barrier between you and him. Uh, so there's no reason not to come up here unless you don't feel comfortable doing so. In which case, I really respect that and I admire that. Uh, so if that's you and you're not ready to do this, so glad you're here. Um, really proud of you for coming. That's not easy to do. But um, if you're anybody else that wants this, uh, you had a really bad week, you know, you got really drunk last night, you did things you would regret, uh, that's not a barrier. Uh, this is not for good people, this is for sinful people. It's for messed up people from bad homes. So uh, all the more reason to come and rejoice as we partake. So uh, let me pray for us.